from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, November 12th. Today, a reality check for prosecutors who vowed to fight the system, the career diplomats coming to Capitol Hill, and the unlikely heroes of Baghdad's protests. So, Mark, I hear that you have been making a lot of phone calls. (laughs) I don't know the exact number, honestly. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Mike. How are you today? I'm, I'm doing well, thank you. This is her. Hey, Tara, it's Mark Berman at The Post. All right, let's try this. How does that sound? Uh, let me ask our producer. Does it sound good? Who have you been talking to? We have been interviewing a number of prosecutors across the country. This is Phil Archer. Hi, Mark. It's Kim Fox from Chicago. How are you? Uh, I am uh, Duffy Stone, and I am the solicitor for the... To talk to them about these changes that are taking place, this debate that's going on regarding sort of the future of American prosecution. Tell me more about this debate. Typically, the top prosecutor in our community is the DA, the state attorney, the state's attorney, some name like that. In almost every state, they're elected and they're elected locally. And it's interesting because typically speaking, once you are elected to one of these jobs, you don't tend to lose it. You tend to have that job until you are ready to leave that job. And for a long time, the people who were elected tended to run on platforms of being tough on crime. The idea was, we are going to protect you. Here's how we're going to do it. We're going to enforce these crimes, law and order sort of rhetoric that we're very familiar with over the years. This debate recently has been, in the last couple of years, we've seen a sort of widespread pushback against the idea of mass incarceration, this idea that the number of people who were put behind bars in the 80s and the 90s, this push again of sort of, can we rethink this? How can we rethink this? How can we recalibrate things? And sort of into that debate came a number of these so-called progressive prosecutors, uh, which is the term that's been affixed to a couple of dozen people who've been elected in communities across the country who have pushed this idea of, what if we don't view the prosecutor as simply somebody who wants to prosecute crime? What if we want to view the prosecutor as somebody can pick and choose more, who can decide certain charges are perhaps not worth pursuing, push back against the idea of mass incarceration as they as they see it. So why are these new elected progressive prosecutors controversial? So in part, some of this comes from the idea that some of the other prosecutors we've spoken to and across the country, both federally and locally, they say that this isn't the role of a prosecutor. They say that the law is the law because a legislature somewhere has approved the laws and the statutes. They say if you're a prosecutor, your job is to enforce those laws. You can use discretion in certain cases. There is this idea that you can look at the facts of a specific crime and a specific allegation and decide whether it is worth to pursue it. But they argue that you can't just look at a class of crimes and decide not to prosecute them. Uh, And that is what some of these progressive prosecutors have done, is they've said that they're not going to pursue certain crimes. Some drug possession, marijuana possession, and things like that, they've said that they are not going to pursue those as much. And so this isn't just like a theoretical conflict, right? Like this is actually playing out in the real world in terms of whether prosecutors are able to do the things that they want to do. This debate is unfolding both across the country and in very sort of hyper-focused ways in these communities. So uh, one example is in the Boston area where the Suffolk County prosecutor, Rachel Rollins, was elected. Yeah, so I think in the past, the campaigns were all fear-mongering and former prosecutors, and I keep you safe by arresting our way to the solution. When she campaigned, she had what is a, a relatively unusual platform, which is... About six weeks before the primary, I put up on my website these lists of very low-level, non 
violent, non-serious crimes that in the first instance, I would not prosecute. There were 15 crimes that she put out, and she said, these are crimes that I am not going to pursue, that our default is going to be not to pursue charges against some of these, including resisting arrest, possessing marijuana. And the argument that she made was, we should be focusing on the more serious crimes. We should be focusing on violent crime. We should be focusing on catching people and prosecuting people for homicides. What happened when she announced that? So in her own telling, when she announced it, uh, essentially people didn't pay that close of attention. What's hilarious, Mark, is when I announced during the campaign, pre-primary, so this is before September 4th, 2018, I was one of five people that was running. When she announced it, she was part of this sort of very, very packed scrum of candidates running to to replace the, the DA who was outgoing. And everyone in law enforcement, including the sitting DA and, you know, all of our elected officials were supporting the man that they were sure was going to win. And so when she announced it at first, it didn't get a lot of attention. Then she won the nomination, which essentially put her on the path to winning the office. And then it started to get a lot of attention. I think everyone woke up September 5th and said, who the hell is Rachel Rollins, right? In law enforcement, they went to my website, they saw this list, and they were like, oh my God, who is she? She got criticism from people across the country, and that continued even after she won office and she swept into office. Congratulations, Madam District Attorney. After we spoke with Rollins for this story, uh, there was an event in Boston that drew a lot of national attention. It was a so-called straight pride parade, which drew a lot of demonstrators. I remember this. And there was a lot of counter-protesters who came, and a number of them were arrested. A lot of the assaults that, that happened during the day, you only know of a few of them. You know of the four officers that were injured due to some of these assaults. Many officers were assaulted throughout the day. And prosecutors from Rollins' office went to court and they said they were going to drop some of the cases. And these were these were cases against the counter-protesters in the, of the street pipe parade. Right. And so they said that, for example, in one case, there was a disorderly conduct charge against a counter-protester they said was, quote, inappropriate. So they were going to drop the case. The judge hearing that pushed back and argued that they had to continue the case. Rollins publicly spoke out against the judge and her office filed an appeal with the state's high court and they won a judgment that essentially ruled that they had the right to drop these cases. They had the right to decide this. Appointed individuals don't get to infuse their own opinions in matters um, where the people of Suffolk County have spoken. It was a really unusual situation where you had a prosecutor essentially going to court to confirm her right to decide which cases to prosecute, which a lot of prosecutors will tell you is a fundamental part of their job. Yeah, that strikes me as the complete opposite of what I've seen in basically every episode of Law & Order, which is that the prosecutor is the one pushing for more charges or higher punishments, and that the judge is the one trying to moderate that. And here you see the whole situation reversed, where the prosecutor is saying, we don't actually want to prosecute this, and the judge says, no, you have to. So talk to me more about Rollins, this prosecutor. Who is she and how did she come to be the top prosecutor in Boston? So Rollins was actually raised in Cambridge uh, and she worked on a number of, she was the top counsel to a number of state agencies in Boston, transportation agencies. And then she had been a federal prosecutor for years before she ascended to those roles in Boston. But what really, I think, opened my eyes about wanting to maybe do this job was honestly watching TV and seeing incident after incident where unarmed, overwhelmingly black and brown men were being killed, quite frankly, by law enforcement across the country 
and DAs that hold the power to investigate those crimes were not speaking to the community in any meaningful way. Rollins will say, as she said to us and as she's told others, she has a background where she has been both a prosecutor and in her personal life has been touched by the criminal justice system. She has, in her telling, two of her siblings were incarcerated. At one point, she went to court for her brother when her brother had a hearing and saw her old office, her the U.S. attorney's office in Boston was prosecuting the case in front of a judge that she had argued before when she was a federal prosecutor. And it was different, Mark, right? When I walked in as an AUSA to that courtroom every day, they knew who I was. You know, you're treated with respect um, because you work in the office and you work hard and you do great work. And not to say they were overtly rude to me, but I could tell the difference in the way that I was treated and even felt. So Rollins' argument is similar to those of a lot of the progressive prosecutors. They think the system can take a more holistic view of the people who come in it and the way that the system interacts with the community as a whole. One of her arguments is that there are a lot of mental health issues, there are a lot of poverty issues that tend to fuel some of these sort of what she calls the lower level nonviolent crimes. She thinks those people should be diverted into treatment. She thinks those people should not necessarily have criminal records that can make it difficult for them to get jobs. She views some of these things as things that essentially clutter up the court system. They clutter up her office. They clutter up the court system with these lower level charges when she thinks they could be prosecuting more serious crimes. So what are other examples where progressive prosecutors have come up against resistance or tensions when they start making decisions based on that platform? In Dallas, the district attorney said he wouldn't prosecute certain crimes. Uh, The Texas governor and attorney general both accused him of promoting what they call lawlessness. Hmm. Uh, In San Antonio, where the district attorney said he would reject charges of criminal trespass against homeless people, the police union there assailed him and said he was, quote, a total abdication of his responsibility. One of the more notable cases has been in Philadelphia, where the district attorney there, Larry Krasner, who's a former public defender, has sort of had a war of words with the U.S. attorney there, William McSwain. I think the role of the prosecutor in America today is clearly to enforce the law and not to make the law and not to pretend that you're a legislator. Now, William McSwain and Krasner both took office around the same time early last year. McSwain has accused Krasner of causing what he calls, quote, a public safety crisis. Our criminal justice systems works well when everybody plays the role that they're supposed to play. But if you approach your job as a prosecutor, that you're not really a prosecutor. Instead, you're what, what Mr. Krasner likes to call himself. You're a public defender with power. Well, the system is going to break down and, um, and public safety is going to be compromised. And Krasner, in in response, has pushed back against McSwain. Krasner's argument is that the system has unfairly penalized people for decades, that it affects not just the people who go through the system, but their loved ones, their friends. And his argument is that the Trump administration is taking aim at progressives like him from the top down. He says that it's just basically part of the same rhetoric. President Trump has criticized progressive prosecutors. Attorney General Barr has criticized progressive prosecutors. Is there any data or statistics to back up whether or not these more progressive policies are actually working? Experts would say that it's too soon to tell. A statistics and criminology professor in Philadelphia, Richard Burke, said that it's too early in the tenure of these prosecutors to know whether they're impacting crime rates in either direction. He says it takes time to figure out what's causing fluctuations in crime. That's part of the debate between McSwain and Krasner in Philadelphia, which is this idea of crime rates, because in Philadelphia, homicides have gone up. They went up last year. They've gone up seven in the last 10 years. 
And last year, violent crimes overall went down a little bit. So Krasner pointed to that while McSwain highlighted the increase in homicides. I think the argument that the more conservative prosecutors are making, that the law is the law, and if you want to change the law, you do that through legislation, but you don't do that through prosecutorial discretion. I mean, I think that that argument holds a lot of water because I'm thinking about something like laws against employment discrimination or laws against hate crimes. I mean, those are laws that I personally would feel upset if they weren't prosecuted. And so I wonder what the more progressive folks say about that argument that, like, maybe we shouldn't just let prosecutors decide when they do and don't want to go after prosecuting a crime. And it's interesting because some of them do say that they understand the law is the law, but they also say discretion is something that's part of a prosecutor's job. They say a prosecutor can't prosecute an infinite number of cases all the time. So they say they have to really pick and choose. And the argument they're making is that there are serious crimes that need to be prosecuted and there are lower level ones, sort of quality of life crimes, if you will, that they think just take too much time from both prosecutors and that can affect the people involved too much. But it's an interesting point. I mean, Rollins talks about that a little bit, too. Yeah, I mean, there. look, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of laws on the books that we never prosecute. Rollins' argument is that there are lots of crimes on the books that aren't necessarily prosecuted, and it's just a matter of picking and choosing the ones that are the most important to the community. Mark Berman is a national reporter covering law enforcement and criminal justice. So where are we right now in the impeachment process? We're at a big moment, a pivot point, where Democrats are going to bring a lot of what they learned behind closed doors out into the public over the next couple of weeks. It's really the first major public step to writing up articles of impeachment against President Trump. Amber Phillips is a politics reporter who's been covering the impeachment inquiry for The Fix. So Wednesday will be the beginning of what I call State Department Week. We're going to have two of the three State Department officials who have testified to Congress behind closed doors come talk to us. The two people are Will Taylor. He's a former ambassador to Ukraine. It's not his official title there now, but he's basically the ambassador there right now. And George Kent. He is a high-level official in the State Department who oversees U.S.-Ukraine policy. These are two people with decades of experience in U.S.-Ukraine policy. And why did Democrats choose these two people to testify on the same day? And, and what is the overarching narrative that they are expected to say? Democrats would like to get across that career officials, again, with decades of experience working in both Republican and Democratic administrations who are just straight shooters on U.S. foreign policy and have nothing to gain politically, think that President Trump's orbit was undermining U.S. policy in favor of President Trump's political interests. Taylor and Kent, in particular, were at a position, both in Washington and Kiev, where they could watch a lot of this happen. They were talking to some of the point people in, in Trump's orbit who were executing some of these alleged quid pro quos, and they were hearing from them what was happening. 
Taylor in particular took really detailed notes. He wrote a memo to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo at one point outlining all his concerns. He you know, said he always has a notebook with him. And I think of him as a reporter who was figuring out what was going on in real time and then put it all together for this testimony. And both of them say they were super alarmed. And I think it's worth reminding people that that both of these individuals have testified previously to these same members of Congress behind closed doors. So essentially, they've been auditioned for this, right? Democrats are very confident that they're going to be very good witnesses for them. Democrats hope they're going to be good witnesses for them. Democrats pick these people specifically to share with the American people what they hope is like a nonpartisan assessment of what Trump did. Because at this point, we've heard Democrats come out of these closed-door depositions and say, man, it was so damaging what Bill Taylor said. And so the goal is to have these nonpartisan people tell their story in a way that has it jump off the page and resonates for Americans who might be skeptical of the lawmakers. So what were the takeaways of what Bill Taylor said behind closed doors and What are we expecting him to say tomorrow? Taylor was the first U.S. official to go to Congress and say there were quid pro quos. And I say plural. Taylor testified not just one, but two, that the Trump administration or people in Trump's orbit held back military aid that Congress approved for Ukraine and held back an Oval Office meeting to get Ukraine's president to publicly state he'll launch investigations into Trump's political opponents. So Taylor was the first official to connect those dots. Taylor wasn't hearing this directly from Trump and not even from Trump's point people. They, they didn't go out of the room and immediately talk to Taylor. But he talked to a number of officials at the White House, national security officials, Ukrainian officials, who were all telling him the same thing, that quid pro quos were being offered. As a testament to the accuracy of Taylor's testimony, a national security official by the name of Tim Morrison testified later that, you know, he didn't think this stuff was illegal. It wasn't a quid pro quo. But yes, Taylor's correct. This happened. Another important point of Taylor's testimony is the person who communicated allegedly one of these quid pro quos is Gordon Sondland, a Trump donor who's now a diplomat overseeing the European Union. Sondland originally testified before Taylor and said, I don't remember if I communicated quid pro quo. Taylor's testimony was just so thorough and so accurate. Sondland said, It refreshed his recollection, I think was exactly the words he used. And yes, he pulled a Ukrainian aside at one point and said, listen, if y'all want to get your military aid, your president needs to announce these investigations. So basically what what Taylor has been saying was that there were all these people around him who came to him and said, hey, we're noticing this weird dynamic. Things seem sort of unusual. We're getting a lot of pressure or we're hearing about pressure and that he can kind of speak to the atmosphere within the State Department, the atmosphere between the U.S. and Ukraine during this time period. Yep, that's exactly right. And so then what does George Kent bring to this and what is he expected to say So Kent was in a position like Taylor only in Washington to to be in contact with a lot of these people in Trump's orbit and a lot of national security officials and even Ukrainian officials to assess what was happening. So we're expected to hear a lot of the same from him as we do from Taylor. In fact, a lot of their private testimonies bounce off each other. Like one of the highlights of Kent's testimony behind closed doors was that he said he heard the president said nothing less than an investigation into the Bidens, 2016, and Clinton was going to satisfy him in Ukraine. Well, Kent said he heard that from Taylor. So I expect these two guys to bounce off each other a lot. 
What's interesting about Kent is he does a thorough job of illustrating how corrupt Ukrainians were working with Rudy Giuliani, Trump's personal lawyer, to undermine U.S. interest in Ukraine, he felt. They essentially recruited Giuliani to smear the ambassador at the time, Maria Ivanovich, and brought that all the way up to Trump's attention, and he ousted her under allegations many people at the State Department say just weren't true and weren't fair. So the additional narrative that Kent is likely to be talking about is this idea that not only was President Trump or President Trump's allies putting pressure on Ukraine, but also that Ukrainians were basically using the president or using the administration that, that in the narrative that is being put forth by Kent that that the U.S. was being played. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that from there, I think we can expect Kent to illustrate how their interests, some of these what he calls corrupt officials in Ukraine and people in Trump's orbit were symbiotic. They like they needed each other to get after their political opponents. So what are Republicans expected to say during these hearings? What is the line of questioning that they're planning to take? That after weeks and weeks and weeks and thousands of pages of closed-door testimony, Democrats still can't say President Trump did this. That he, he was the one who said, yes, hold up military aid until Ukraine investigates my political opponents. That it might be Giuliani or it might be other members of the administration or Trump's circle, but it wasn't actually Trump himself. Exactly. And in some key players in all this, like Gordon Sondland, a, a, a Trump ally, said, I just presumed that's what the president wanted. So that's what I went out and said. Others, like Kurt Volker, another Trump point person on all this, said, Giuliani was the one telling me to do this stuff, and and so I did it. So then is that going to be the big question for tomorrow's hearing? Like, do you expect that what Taylor and Kent will say will actually directly implicate the president in this? No, I don't. Because Taylor and Kent weren't part of President Trump's inner circle on this. So they don't have the knowledge of who was directing what. All they could see was what was happening. And it's an incomplete picture because they weren't in the rooms when somebody somewhere said, hold up that military aid. And somebody somewhere said, have President Zelensky investigate the Democrats. So I don't I don't expect them to implicate Trump. That's They didn't do that in their private testimony. And again, Democrats, I think, obviously would like to find the smoking gun here, but they also see that as a strength of character of these witnesses, is that these are crew diplomats. They don't have any political vendettas to execute against the president. They're not going to, like, overstep what they know. They're going to lay out the facts as they understand them, even if it doesn't portray perfectly with the narrative Democrats might want. Amber Phillips writes about politics for The Fix. And now, one more thing about a new role for Baghdad's tuk-tuks. A tuk-tuk is a three-wheeled motorcycle. It has a ceiling on it, like basically made of fabric and with extra seats. It can fit beside the driver, uh, someone on the front and two people in the back. This is the post-Baghdad reporter Mustafa Salem. He says that the tuk-tuks are actually pretty new to the streets of Baghdad. It was brought into Iraq in the past two years as a business for those people who are living on the 
poor neighborhoods that has narrow alleys, alleys that sometimes cars can't fit into. So the, basically the job of the tuk-tuk was to transport the people from the local markets of that neighborhood into those uh, narrow alleys. And up until recently, the tuk-tuks have been considered kind of an annoyance. For a while, because it's a new thing, they have been seen as something that distorting the shape of the Iraqi city of Baghdad. It's also like always became a sample for the poverty and the poor areas. For a while, people, whenever they see them in the streets, they uh, push the horns as a sign of anger that they don't want them. But during the recent Iraqi uprising, they have proved them wrong. The uprising that he's talking about is the wave of protests that swept Iraq a month ago. Young Iraqis are protesting widespread corruption and lack of job opportunities and basic services. Iraqi security forces have tried to shut down the protests, and they've been violent. More than 300 people have been killed. About 15,000 people have been wounded. And through all of that, an unlikely hero has emerged. The tuk-tuk drivers. When there was live shooting and sniper bullets, whenever a casualty falls down, uh, ambulance can't reach to save him. Neither the people, because they were shot at, the only people who were rushing into the scene and dodging sniper bullets were the tuk-tuk drivers, raising casualties to safety and drive them either back to the ambulance or to the hospitals themselves. I rode along with a tuk-tuk driver. His name was uh, Ahmed. Uh, he was 17 years old. And he wrote in his tuk-tuk, uh, giving a rise for protesters for free. When I asked him, like, why is he doing this? He said that he's here to demand his rights. He said he's here in order to do his role uh, into this protest. And he has been there for five days in concert. He never went home. The image of a tuk driver now uh, has been changed in a dramatic way. Now they became like a heroes. Now, like most of the people of Baghdad, the same way they look at the ambulance car, they look at tuk I have talked to many people when during the reporting and asked them about tuk-tuk. I remember uh, a female medic, uh, medical student, was saying that she hated seeing them before, but now she's honored to ride a tuk-tuk because she's feeling like a queen. I'm now also riding them when I go to go to the protest because it's the only way to reach deep inside because there are no cars. Like when we drive among the cars, all the cars saluting him and call them call them like a heroes, and people are paid for their fuel and their food and whatever they need. In Iraq, we are familiar that those rich people, especially the politicians, usually ride land cruisers. And now the loss of signs that protesters are like raising among the protests, they are saying, our tuk-tuk has beat your land cruisers. I mean, without the tuk-tuk, this uprising wouldn't last a day. Mustafa Salem is a reporter for The Post based in Baghdad. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. The public stage of the impeachment inquiry begins this week, and we'll be covering it. 
starting with a recap of the first public testimonies on tomorrow afternoon's episode of Post Reports. But you should also follow other Washington Post podcasts for the latest updates. There's Can He Do That? and The Daily 202's Big Idea. And you can find all that impeachment-related audio in one place, the Post's Impeachment Inquiry podcast feed. Find a link at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts or search Washington Post Impeachment Inquiry wherever you listen. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.